Welcome to the Compass Church Podcast with Pastor Tim Jacobs, a ministry of Compass Church, Goodyear, Arizona. Join us now as we look into God's Word to be challenged and changed. God's plan for everybody, really, at the end of the day, is, is to bring us from here to there, to bring you from where you are now to a place that he's created you to be, the place where that, that fully capitalizes on, on your uh, the fact that you've been made in his image and, and brings you to a place of freedom from the things that can so easily like entangle us and, and wreck us. But along the journey, along the way in that journey, there's, there can be times when we can get really discouraged. And there can be times when we lose our confidence because you, know, you can feel like you're on the right track and you're like, you know what? I feel like things are going so well. Like, you know, things are finally starting to, 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 to move forward and, and I feel like, wow, finally I'm getting ahead, and then all of a sudden some unexpected thing happens, some twist, some tragedy, and some event that you couldn't have counted on, and it can just wreck you, you know? It can just take away your sense of, of direction, and you start questioning, like, God, did you bring me this far just so I could fail? Did you lead me all the way to this place just to let me go? And it's so easy to feel like that, and so you start asking those questions. We've been studying the story of God leading the Israelites into the promised land and taking them from places they had never been before, where they had been, to a place they'd never been. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Joshua chapter 4, and we're going to look at that. And uh, it's in the Old Testament. If you uh, have a Bible, it's towards the beginning. If you don't have a Bible with you or if you don't have any way on your smartphone, you can go on there too. But otherwise, just look on the, on the screen. We'll have the verses there. But last week, the Israelites found themselves face-to-face with the Jordan River, which was as far as they were concerned, um, uncrossable. They could not cross this river. They had a huge, massive obstacle in their way. And it had, as the Bible said, it, it had been overflowing its banks because the snow had been melting on the mountain above and, and coming down and causing this raging, rushing river. So you could see the white caps and you could hear the flow of it and, you know, overflowing where it would normally be and rising above the trees and snapping branches and all that kind of stuff. And you look at this thing and there's just no way you're going to get across. And yet if they're going to get where God wants them to be, they've got to somehow get across. God was asking them to do something that by all accounts was impossible to do. But here's the deal. God never asks us to do what is impossible. He only asks us to be strong and courageous and move forward while he does the impossible. It's very important that we understand that. So we see these things that face us and we go, there's no way I can get past that. And on your own strength, you can't get past it. And God's not asking you to on your own strength. He's only asking you to take one more step of faith and obedience. And that's exactly what they did. And so when the priests who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant, um, they, they, they put their feet in the water. In fact, right as the very first priest who was carrying this Ark, and we said the Ark was kind of like the symbol and the picture of the presence of God, right? And as soon as the first priest put his, his non-pedicured, callous, dry-skinned toe into the water, and it just barely touched the first molecule of high-quality H2O of the river, all of a sudden, the river basically just for all intents and purposes disappears. It separates. It just falls apart, and the, their feet land on dry ground. 
And it's this crazy, amazing thing that the Bible makes it a point several times to say they walked across ground that was completely dry. And so the Jordan River turns into the Agua Fria River, right? It's not a river. It's a ditch. We all know this. It's not a river. Stop calling it a river. It's only a river when it rains really, really bad. So the priests then park themselves in the middle of the riverbed while all the people go across and then they will leave once everyone's gone to safety. And why is that? Because God is our leader. He's the first one in and the last one out because that's what a leader does. The first one in and the last one out. And if you think about it, this, so we talked about this last week. So if you think about it, this major, amazing miracle happened that was the first time they'd ever seen anything like this. Now, you know, they did, the Israelites um, were able to experience the crossing of the Red Sea, but not these people. This is a generation later. All those people are dead and gone. This is a new generation of people who are crossing over the Jordan River, and they had heard about this, but they had never actually experienced this. I was thinking about the whole thing of like, why does God like to do this stuff, you know? Why does he like to do these big dramatic things like part a river, you know? Well, one of the reasons why it's this pure um, geography, it's practical. I mean, they're out in the desert. There's not a whole lot of natural barriers, but a river is a pretty significant natural barrier because you can't really go around it because it's a long river, right? And, and you can't really, it's, it would not be feasible for them to construct a bridge over. They don't have the capacity to do that, and they can't get across it um, because of the, the power of the rushing river. Those of you who try to cross dangerous rivers, it can be very dangerous. I mean, even just a little bit of water can really take you by surprise, especially getting that amount of people across. It's just not going to work. It's not feasible for them. The other reason I think God did it was because it's hard. And those of you who work construction, you know, if you ever had to deal with with holding back water or containing water, it's very difficult to do. I talked with a guy who was a builder, and he said that when uh, they build buildings where they put the pools on the roofs of buildings, he said, I got a secret for you. They always leak. They always leak. You cannot contain water. It'll eventually find its way down because that's just, that's what water does. And so it's an incredibly hard thing to hold back an entire river. The, the power of that is just insurmountable. And God likes to do it because I think it's hard. You know, it's just watch me do this. But the real reason that God does these kinds of things, or at least likes to do them, I think is this. Because the Israelites are going to need this event in their past if they are going to have the courage to face the future. They will need this as part of their history if they're going to understand what they will be capable of with God's help as they move forward. Because only when the waters part do they see that the obstacles aren't really obstacles, but rather they are opportunities to trust and obey God like they never have before. That's really, really important. These obstacles in front of you aren't really obstacles. They are opportunities for you to take a step in faith like you never have and then watch God come through in a way that he never has before. And because our children are someday going to ask us and we are someday going to need to be people who can explain and communicate to everyone around us what our God actually does. And so we need to remember. And so as they get across, this is what happens. So we're going to read in Joshua 4, and we're taking the story up from there, and we're going to see what happens when all of these several million people cross this river in this massive miraculous event. And this is what it says starting in verse 1. 
When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, take 12 men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, take 12 stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the 12 men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. So all the people have passed through the river, but the priests are still in the middle. They're still in the middle. And so Joshua says, take 12 guys, one guy from each of your tribes, and send them down into the middle and grab 12 stones, and they have to be, you know, big enough stones so you, you know, they can put them on their shoulders, not just, you know, little tiny rocks, but big enough stones, and I want you to, so, you know, you got to get some buff guys to come over and pick these things up and walk them out, because I want stones from the middle of the river, where there'd be no way we could have gotten these things otherwise than at this moment right now, and you're going to take them with you so that you will, you know, make a memorial out of them, and someday your children are going to ask, what do these stones mean? Now, why would Joshua do this? The reason why is because the enemies we are facing now that, that we've crossed this river are going to make us wonder if God's going to actually come through for us. So the idea is, here's the thing. When the Israelites left the Egyptians and they crossed the Red Sea, they left and basically um, they were running away from danger. Now, as they're crossing the Jordan, they're running into danger. The situation is not getting less intense, it's getting more intense. And what they are going to need now is something that, to help them remember these events that have happened for them. So I want to answer the question, what do these stones mean? Because that was the question he asked. What do these stones mean to you? So someday your kid's going to ask you, what do these stones mean to you? So I wanted to take that and say, let's talk about that question, because I think that question in it contains a lot of um, answers that we could come out as we, look of, as we look at this passage. So number one, what do these stones mean to you? This, I would say number one, since God has upheld me in the past, I can be confident he will uphold me in the future. If God has upheld me, if he has preserved me, if he has safeguarded me, if he has kept me alive all of this time and watched over me in the past, then I can be confident he will do the same in the future. And I think this is very important for Joshua to communicate this to all of the people. Now what's fascinating to me is, and I had to double check this because I heard this many years ago and then I hadn't heard it for a while, and I was like, I want to make sure and check, make sure this is true, is that the Hebrew word for future, when you look at its root, it actually means afterward or behind. So it's kind of like, you know, you can look at everything and say, I see all this, but the future's that way. The future's behind me. The future's afterward. It's behind. So I can't see it. 
And the best way to describe the understanding, the Hebrew understanding of the future, is to look at it like a rowboat, right? When you get on a rowboat and you row, the mechanics of rowing are that, you know, you want it, you row backwards because that's the most efficient way for you to use your body, right? And so you row and you don't know where you're going as you're rowing. You just know that you're rowing, you know, that direction, right? If you're going like this. So, but here's the thing. You don't know where you're going, so how, do you, how can you tell? Well, the only way you can tell is by where you've been. And so you can kind of collect these data points along the way. So for example, if you're rowing across the lake, as you see the shoreline starts to get closer and closer, then you can reasonably deduce that you are getting to the end of the lake, right? Not because you can see it, but because you know where you've been and you can see these things that are behind you or in front of you in a sense as you're going the other direction. And the Hebrew concept of that is the same thing. So the more that you can gather these points and remembrances and you can say, wait a second, God was here at this moment. God was here at this moment. God was here at this moment. And that gives me an indicator of where he's going to be. And so when we look at the future and we wonder what's going to happen, so many people freak out about the future. And so they do things that are really unnecessary like tarot cards and tea leaves. And like, why would you do that? There's, there's no context, you know? There's no context behind any of that stuff. You just call some random number and you're like, I wonder what's gonna be my future. These people don't know. They don't know anything. They have no knowledge. They don't know who you are. And it's always the same general thing. You know, a good thing will happen to you today. Really? What does that mean? Even astrology, I took an, an astronomy class in college, and even when you look at your, your sign, your zodiac sign, what, what astrologers don't tell you is there's a little thing called precession, where the axis of the earth has moved in the last, you know, several thousand years since astrology was invented. And so the sign where, you're, where you, they determine your sign based on where it is in the sky is actually different than when it first invented. And we tried this in my astronomy class, and I'm, I'm a June baby, so I was supposed to be a Gemini, but if you actually look at where it was intended, I'm actually a Taurus. So all this time, I've been reading the wrong one. <laughs> what do I do, right? And so I, that's, that's why I've made all these mistakes in my life, right? Because I've been reading the wrong sign. Those things, you can't trust to those things. Same thing like, I mean, you can read all of the, the Chinese fortune cookies you want, you know? I mean, go ahead and break them up. Although they're really kind of boring, unless you add the words in bed after them, then they're kind of fun. So try, try that. Um, although with, my, with our kids, we always said in the bathroom, you know, we didn't want to say in bed, but it's, you can really kick up a fortune cookie if you just read it and add those words at the end. So I thought that was funny. But anyway, <clears throat> so all that to be said, little rabbit trail, but none of that stuff, mean, none of that stuff is helpful at all. It's, it's, it's meaningless. You cannot determine the future based on those things. The way you understand the future is by where God has taken you up to this point. So you think about the things that really scare you in life, you know. And all I can tell you is this. Whatever you've been through in your life, you're still here. You're still breathing. So it may have been bad, but it hasn't been that bad because you're still here. Now, if you happen to stop breathing at this point, please let one of our ushers know or call 911, you know. Um, but you're still breathing, which means God still has purpose for you, which means he's not done with you yet. And you kind of, you think about it, it's kind of like death. People are very much afraid of dying, and rightly so, because it's, it's an experience like no other. We will, we will be basically removed from this three-dimensional world. We will be separated from this physical body. I mean, that's what happens. And we don't know really, I mean, you know, I mean, we, we teach and believe in the concept of heaven and hell and all that kind of stuff, but, but you don't really know how all that works, right? And so it can be, it's a very, very scary thing for people to think about, like the process of death and dying and everything else. 
So how do we know? We don't really have a whole lot of clues as to the mechanics of it all. What we do have is what's come before us. So we do have the data points along the way. And so if you think about it, well, how did God bring you into this world? Do you remember? Or how about this? Do you, do, were you responsible at all for your own creation? No. Did you, did you plan that at all? No. Do, do, you, do you even remember the day that you were born? No, thank God you don't, right? I remember like it was yesterday, Ma. You know, awkward, right? In God's mercy, he makes us not remember things for a while or have no knowledge of things. And all of a sudden, what? You're like three or four years old. And you're like, here I am. I don't know how I got here. I just know here I am. Well, where's the cookie, right? You, you know, that's all you know. You just were brought into the world with no effort of your own. But, but no work on your own. No, you, you, all these years of your little tiny life, you were, other people had to take care of you and you were absolutely, completely, 100% helpless at the mercy of all of your organs functioning properly and the people around you that watched over you. And I would say that even now when you go to sleep at night, the, the, your, your system still works and you have no control over that whatsoever. Zero. You think you do, but you don't. Who sustains you? Who keeps you breathing with all these mechanisms that, that are automatic? You don't even think about it. You have so you don't have so much less control than we think we do. So what I'm trying to say is that even when it comes to something as scary as death, we go, okay, well, if God brought me into the world and all of a sudden I'm here, would, wouldn't death be a similar kind of thing? And all of a sudden, you know, there, there I am in, in the next life. But now we would say that where you go is very much dependent on you and the decisions you make in your life and the God you choose to serve now because you don't want to meet God for the first time when you meet God for the first time, right? You don't be like, oh, I didn't know it was you. That's a bad situation to be in. In fact, we think we can live our lives totally independent of God now and then we'll just die and then we'll go to heaven and it'll be like totally familiar to us. But that's not true. It's not the way that it works. Heaven is the place where God's rules rule all the time. It's, a, it's his kingdom where his rules rule. And so the challenge of the Christian life is to live under his rules now so that when you get to heaven, it won't be such a strange place. It will actually feel like home. Like, oh, I've been preparing for this all my life. Now for the person who doesn't want God now in their life, why would, why would you want to live under God's rules when you're dead? You're going to automatically change your mind? See, look, every person is either preparing for heaven, a place where God's rules rule, or they're preparing for hell, a place where God's rules are completely absent. You're either preparing for one or the other. You're either gauging and, and training and orienting yourself to one eternal destination or the other. That's the reality of it. But that being said, for those who say, I want to be with God, and I want to trust in God, I orient my life to him. And then someday I'm ushered into his presence where there's great joy, which is why David says in Psalm chapter 116, verse 15, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And we see it on this side is so terrible, but the reality is, is that we look at where, where's God taking us? If he's brought us this far, he's not just gonna let us go even upon our own death. Now you may be facing the deepest and darkest challenge of your life right now. You say, what do I do? But it's kind of like our kids, you know? You should never make light of the trials that your kids are going through, you know? Because they're very real to them. It's like, you know, hey, Jenny, what's the biggest problem in your life? A biology test? Whoa. Try making a mortgage payment, right? You shouldn't do that kind of stuff. Because God could look at you and say, what's the biggest problem in your life? You got fired. Whoa. Try dying on the cross for the sins of the world, you know? 
He can say that to you. The reality is, though, is that, that, that the problems you're facing now are very real to you, but the problems you faced 10 years ago were very real to you as well. They were the, the biggest problem in your life 10 years ago was the biggest problem in your life 10 years ago, and guess what? God got you through that. Well, you don't understand. This problem is way bigger. Well, but you could be facing a problem 10 years from now that's way bigger than this. You don't know. So whatever, it doesn't matter. It's like, it, it's, it's relative in a sense. So what you do is you look back and you go, wait a second, God got me through that. And I thought, man, when I was 16 years old, I thought that was the worst thing ever. And somehow I survived. Now I'm 39 or whatever, however old you are, 49 or whatever. And, and you're looking at your life and you're going, I don't know how I'm going to get through this, but he got you through all these other things. And so you have these markers you have to set up in your life and go, wait a second. I, I shouldn't be afraid of this. It's not right to be afraid of this because all of the evidence suggests otherwise. Then that's what's happening. Which leads me to the next thing. The second thing that these stones mean to us is that God's protection over your life is real, not merely a legend. God's protection over your life is real, not merely a legend or an idea or a thought. See, he says the children are going to ask, what do these stones mean to you, right? And so right now we live in this crazy time where people love to say, well, you know, I don't want to teach my kids, you know, what to believe. I want them to find out for themselves because I don't want to taint them. You know, I just, I want them to make up their own mind, which is funny because we don't do that with anything else in life. You know, you don't take your little son and go, you know, here, hey, little Carson, you know, I, I don't want him to touch the stove, you know, but at the same time, I, I don't want to box him in either, right? So maybe, maybe he wants to just be free to touch the stove. And after all, who am I? I'm just one person with one stove, and there's lots of stoves out there, and maybe he'll find a stove that he wants to touch. And I just don't want to, like, you know, contain him. I want him to be free and discover things on his own. No! We have a little kid, you go, don't touch the stove, you're going to burn yourself. And you're an idiotic parent if you don't teach your kid that. You go, well, Tim, but yeah, come on, that's, that's real, right? I mean, the stove is real, and you could really get burned. We're just talking about religion, right? We're just talking about faith. We're just talking about matters of opinion. Oh. Oh, so now we get the truth, right? So the freeway, playing in the freeway, or touching a hot stove, or messing around with a gun or whatever else, that's real. But a matter of faith is it's, it's not really real. It's just kind of your invention in your head. That's very revealing to actually what you think about matters of faith. But the reality is your kids are going to ask you, what do these stones mean? What does this life mean, mom and dad? Where did I come from? Why am I here? Where am I going? And what are you going to say? What are you going to say when... Our children face these insurmountable obstacles in front of them. It's hard being a kid these days. There's so many things that, want, that are out there just ready to suck them in and warp their mind or at least make them comfortable throughout their life so they don't really go after anything of any great importance because there's so many fun things to pursue. So where in life is there any meaning? What do you do when your daughter says, why shouldn't I sleep with my boyfriend? Why shouldn't I get high? Why shouldn't I shoot up a school? I mean, after all, I'm a victim. After all, people are mean. After all, I've been ignored for too long. It's time to set the record straight, right? It's time to teach humanity a lesson. You got any other ideas? You got a compelling reason for my existence? Ask your mother. I don't know. Talk to your mother. She's the one that knows about faith. Okay. Okay. See, Here's the point. Look how specific 
this is. You, you, you know, you can't read this passage that we just read. You can't read the story of the parting of the Jordan River and say, well, they don't expect us to believe it actually happened. No, actually, they, they do expect you to believe that it actually happened. Because last week, if you read chapter 3 in the story, it says, the waters backed up very far away at the city of Adam, which is beside Zarathon. In other words, an actual place. It wasn't like, the waters parted, and uh, they went over into this strange region that no one's ever heard of. No, no. It's over in the city of Adam. You can go see it. Well, how would they know? They weren't there. Well, obviously, the people at Adam were living there, told them, dude, the craziest thing happened. Like all of a sudden the waters piled up. I don't know how it happened, but it was the craziest, weirdest thing we've ever seen in our lives. So that's how they knew. And they said, you don't believe us? Go talk to someone over there. We said it's over. So all you want to do if you're an enemy of the Israelites and discredit them is send a guy over there and go, did that actually happen? No, nah, those guys are lying. Okay, fine. Now we'll just go kill them all. But that's not what happened. They said it, it, the waters are backed up at that city, way far away from where we were, so we were able to cross. And not only that, but we crossed on dry ground. Now, they didn't have to say that. They could have said, well, you know, it's kind of muddy, obviously, but that's what happens when the water. No, they go, it's like when you're trying to tell someone something really amazing that happened, and they're kind of like, are you sure? And you go, no, 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 you don't understand. Like, the, the ground was totally dry. I'm not making this up. And they walked across, and it was like dusty. It was crazy. And you're like, what? Yeah. So they're, trying, they're going to great pains. When you read this, they're not getting this idea that, well, let's just talk about the meaning of parting the river. That, you know, God parts rivers in our lives. No. Because if it's only the idea of parting the river, if it's only the idea of saving them, then he doesn't really save them. Which means he doesn't really save you. He only saves you in an idea. That's not really being saved. You know, when you're really hungry, like when I'm really hungry and I have the idea of In-N-Out, I don't just go, oh, I needed that. Tomorrow, I'm going to have the idea of In-N-Out as well, and it'll be just as good. No, I really actually need In-N-Out, or I'm going to die. But we go, oh, you know, it's just the idea. He didn't really, come on, God, God doesn't really do They're just telling us an allegory. But perhaps there's no greater indicator of the fact of this story than their description of the response. And if you look at chapter five, it says, as soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea, in other words, west of the Jordan, where the Israelites are now since they have crossed over it, heard the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over. Again, like, we're trying to go to great pains. They all made it across. They were dried up. They didn't just move it. They dried the sucker up. Their hearts melted, and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. The kings of these great, powerful tribes heard this, and they went, wait, wait. So all those people are on this side of the Jordan? Yeah, on our side of the Jordan. Yeah, well, how'd they get across? The, th the thing dried up, and they walked across. Oh my gosh. This is bad. Their hearts melted. These are not wimpy guys. These are serious people. These are not idiotic kings. They've gotten where they've gotten because of courage and fierceness and brutality and murder and everything else. And they're not stupid. They know the geography. And they know these guys are on this side. And all of them made it on this side of the river. And they're coming after us. They've got some crazy warrior God that we are not going to be able to defeat. And their hearts melt. 
And put this together. How does a ragtag bunch of migrants wandering around the desert with nothing pull something like this off? Now, why do I say this? Well, you know, first of all, Easter is coming, and it's going to be awesome here at Compass. We have some cool ideas, by the way. It's going to be like nothing we've ever done before. If we pull this off, I'm telling you it's going to be good. But here's the thing. Easter is all about the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross, and it wasn't just the end. He rose from the dead. Now, people will say around Easter, there's always these scholarly, brilliant people that spend way too much time drying up in some college somewhere that, um, well, you know, we know that Jesus didn't really rise from the dead because people don't rise from the dead. But he, he did rise in a, in a metaphysical sense. He did rise because his ideas live on. He did rise because his spirit lives in the hearts of his followers and those who are, everyone who is concerned with love and peace today. Wow, that's brilliant, right? And they write long articles about it. There's no way. I mean, we know that this is just impossible. Well, here's the problem. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then he's dead like everybody else. And you could say, well, it's wonderful that he rose in spirit, but think about this. I mean, you, if you died... And, you know, your Facebook page could still live on. And your motorcycle could still live on. And your chicken recipe could still live on. But here's the problem with you. You're still dead. So what do you care? You're dead. It doesn't matter. So this is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead, like actually really bodily rise, like he was dead and buried and gone in the tomb, and then he got out of there and he's alive, then we are the most pathetic people on the planet. Are you, are you ready? For, I'll prove it to you. Look at this. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. So we're idiots for preaching and you're idiots for showing up. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. So you think you're going to heaven, but you're not because you cannot work your way to heaven. The only way to get to heaven is to receive the grace of Jesus Christ so he stands in your place, pays your punishment for you so that God graciously welcomes you in. It's not based on your works. It's not by works of righteousness, but according to his mercy that we're saved. So guess what? You're still in your sins. You still owe God if Jesus Christ has not been raised because it would have been proven that he, was just, that he did not live a life worthy. Death still got him. Death, he was still held accountable. He was not a perfect worthy sacrifice. And then look at this. Then also, those who've fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Not those who've fallen asleep in church. Um, that's different. Um, you still might perish for that. But, but, but fallen asleep, meaning, meaning they have died. They have died. So even those who have died already as Christians, they've got no hope either. So then he says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. We are the most pathetic losers that have ever walked the face of the earth because we put our faith in a dead guy who we say rose, but he didn't really rise. You see, if you're really going to be saved from death, then you really have to be saved from death. Not just like, you know, the idea of being saved. And when you're facing a problem, like you're facing a real money problem, and you're facing a real marriage problem, and you're facing a real bitterness problem or whatever the case may be, or a real physical violence problem, 
You don't need to be saved or rescued from that as in the idea, just so you feel better. You need actual, real, three-dimensional deliverance from those things that actually bring you down and hurt you and destroy you. Because those real bills are coming in the mail. And that real divorce paper could be signed. And that's really going to affect your life. And so when you begin to go to God and say, God, I actually need you to do something in my life to bring me through this, you're not just looking to feel better. You're actually looking for things to actually change in the three-dimensional world in which you live. And that's why this story has to be real or God is a fraud. And it's not worth believing in him. Maybe, maybe for ethical reasons so you can stay out of prison or whatever. Other than that, it's dumb. The third thing that the stones mean is this. Because the stones are set up, is it's time to get ridiculously courageous. In other words, if all this is true, it's time for you to get ridiculously courageous. In other words, it's time to stop worrying about the future and finally live with courage that can be set in stone. We are done being afraid about the future. We are done like trembling over all these things that look like giants in our lives when we know we have a God who is bigger and actually does miraculous things in our lives, things that we could not expect him to do. And so... Some of us, many of us, perhaps all of us, need to revisit that place again where you say, God, I know that you asked me to do things that seem to me impossible, but you don't want me to do them. You just want me to obey you while you do the impossible. So I'm not going to worry about the outcome. I'm going to worry about faith and obedience. Some of you need to get to that place where you kind of rededicate that message to God, to yourself, to him, right? Say, God, this is where I'm at. So I'm going to ask Gabe to come out here. And in a moment, you are going to have an opportunity to, to have like a landmark moment for yourself. Because the truth is some of us are, are facing things that we don't think we can overcome, at least on our own power. But we just said the same God that's upheld you all this time is going to be the same God who will uphold you in the future. So we um, went and got all of these. We got these stones here. And this is a stone of remembrance. And in a moment, you're going to be invited to come up out of your seat while Gabe plays and to take one of these stones. And don't just take it and just, you know, run back. But take it and just take a moment. And it's okay if you hang out for a minute or two. And make this a personal time where it, the stone can represent as a visual reminder that whatever you're facing right now, God's got it. And, and this stone is a reminder to you of all the things he's taken you through up to this point. And so what I want you to do is I don't want you to, to, to hide this, to put it in your nightstand drawer or put it in a cup holder or whatever in your car, I want you to, to actually maybe put it on your desk at work or on a shelf, or you can like put it on Instagram, you know, hashtag God's got this or whatever, you know, ask me about my stones, you know. Um, but but the, the point is, is you, you want to be able to say, you know what, God, I re- this, this, is, uh, this is a reminder that you brought me through Things in my life. So when someone asks you, because I want people to ask you, like, what do you have that rock on your desk for? What's that rock for? When your kids go, hey, Dad, what's that thing for? Hey, Mom, what's that for? You know, this is a reminder. I have this here because 
when times in my life when I'm facing things that, that I don't know how I'm going to get through, I look at this and I remember that God's got me through things that I was afraid of in the past. And so I have no doubt, I have no doubt at all that God's going to get me through the things that I fear in the future. It's pretty cool. Now, um, here's the thing. Maybe some of you today walked in here and you're like, you know, I'm not a Christian yet. That's cool. You know, but yet at the same time, you're like, you, you have to confess you're worried about the future. You got something that's staring you down right now. And you, don't how, you don't know how you're going to get through it. Maybe your job or your business is struggling. And you feel like God's brought you this far, but you've never been in this place before. Maybe your marriage is fragile and you don't know how you're going to make it. You could just be in a place of deep loneliness. And you wonder, is God ever going to restore my joy? And give me a sense of belonging. You come take one too. You just maybe it'd be a first step for you in your life. Just maybe a first step you've ever taken in a spiritual sense where you go, you know, God, I'm not sure about all this, but I guess I, I have to be honest and say that you, you, have, you, you have allowed me to, to, to come this far and, and, and maybe you really do love me and maybe you really are going to be there for me and maybe this is like a first step for you. Billy Graham, the, the great evangelist, as you know, he passed away this past Wednesday at 99 years old. People are putting all kinds of tributes out there for him. And the one that I thought was the best was his quote about himself, where he says, Someday you will read or hear that Billy Graham is dead. Don't you believe, don't you believe a word of it? I shall be more alive than I am now. I will just have changed my address. I will have gone into the presence of God. I mean, it's like, do you, do you, do you believe that? And it's not just about death, but it's about everything else you face. Oh, so-and-so, they're ruined. Oh, they're in deep trouble. Uh, no, man. God's got me. I'm good. For some of you, taking one of these stones may be your way of saying for the first time, I believe in Jesus as my Savior. I believe that he died on the cross for my sins. And if he do that for me, then I have nothing to fear. Because a God that would go to those lengths to rescue me is not going to let me down now. Thanks for joining us today. Why not ask God to change your life so you can go and change your world for Him? To find out more about our church online, go to www.compasschurch.info and we'll see you next time.